Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 259. This is an episode like no other. I've never done anything like this, but the circumstances clearly demand it. I'm sitting here with Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein in his inner sanctum, in his library in Poway, California. Ground zero, where literally a little more than a week ago, on the last day of Pesach, one of the most sacred days of the year, the end of the holiday of redemption of the Jewish people, tragically, Lori Kay was torn away from us by a terrorist, by a murderer. We don't even have the right name. Rabbi Goldstein, as has now been known by everybody, as you see him, is carrying sacred wounds that he incurred protecting his congregation. And as we know by now, he wrapped his hands Natalis bleeding hands to save the children, to save the congregants in the middle of the reading of the Torah on that last day of Pesach. So it's beyond words that I can say I'm humbled and honored to have him here on this program. This program is Hasidic Supplied. It's taking Hasidic ideas, Hasidic teachings that the Rabbeim, starting from the Alter Rebbe and to our Rebbe, our beloved Rebbe of the seventh generation, who've dedicated all their lives to teaching us, to guiding us, to directing us, and applying their teachings to our lives. So what better way to honor Chassidah Supplied is a walking, living example that literally, unceasingly, and tirelessly, for a week, has been making one of the greatest Kiddush Hashem's, sanctifying God's name, and sanctifying Chassidus in his actions and his behavior, and his words that have reached literally millions and millions of people. So I felt what better way to honor it is by being here in Poway. A few days ago when we were communicating with each other, the Rabbi Goldstein asked me, would you come here for Shabbos? Without having a question, absolutely. And we spent a Shabbos that uh, I don't have the words really to describe, a Shabbos of healing, a Shabbos of transformation. I personally was unbelievably inspired by literally every moment where you see a community so hurt on one end and celebrating Judaism on the other end. It's really a lesson for all of us. So first, of course, our hearts go out, our hearts are shattered, and the condolences to Lori's family, Howard, her dear husband, Hannah, her daughter, and that's why we're dedicating the program in her loving memory, killed on Kiddush Hashem and Achron Pesach, the last day of Pesach, and God should bless that her husband and her daughter and her family and extended family and the community should be healed and in ways even stronger and greater than they were before because God has, is able to achieve everything. Together with that, this program is going to be completely focused on this theme, how to become stronger in face of tragedy. And uh, I really feel I'm sitting with, uh, in the presence of greatness I know Rabbi Goldstein won't uh, necessarily agree, but I feel that way. He has been chosen by God to be in this position. And we will talk about a number of issues. This will be a conversation. I just wanted to create the context. Let me just share a few words about Shabbos, and then I'll introduce Rabbi Goldstein, and he'll share a few words. And we'll talk about things, trying to probe deeper into the human spirit. What gives us strength and the ability to deal with any challenge, any setback? any tragedy, and hopefully we can all come away with greater strength than ever before. 
So let me just share my feelings about the Shabbos that we were here. This was the first Shabbos, literally, seven days from when it happened. So both Friday night, the shul was packed. Hundreds and hundreds of people, and as I hear, most that, were never, that no one had ever seen before. And I'm sure synagogues all over the country and the world were packed as well, as Rabbi Goldstein so eloquently called upon us all to demonstrate that we will not back down, that we will use this opportunity to fill the shuls and to light candles and to demonstrate that we're proud Jews and to add in mitzvahs and to create a real revolution of Yiddishkeit. And I saw it with my own eyes Friday night. It was a beautiful dinner afterwards. Rabbi Goldstein spoke. I shared a few words. And then Shabbos Day, what can I say? When the ark was opened and all the, uh, Howard K., the husband of the late Lori, and the other heroes who helped save the community were standing there with the open ark. Rabbi Goldstein began speaking. And I mean, it was awesome. Asking us all, he spoke to God, asking God to protect us, to protect the Jewish people, and asking God that we all get into, and asking all of us, I should say, that we should say a Shema Yisrael like never before, to drown out the sounds of the bullets with even louder Shema Yisrael. And then asking each of us to make a resolution, a real resolution in action, to do something, to increase in light, to increase in our Judaism, in our Yiddishkeit, in our humanity, in being better people. That's the only way to really transform such tragedy into the positive. I can't really describe it. It was just something that, one of those moments I will never forget. And with that, I'd like to formally introduce Rabbi Goldstein. And please share your own feelings over the Shabbos. We're literally still in the just stood up shiva this morning with Howard. And I really feel honored to be here with you. And, um, and you know, the world is listening to you. And God has given you the mouth to uh, share the words that are giving so many people power and strength. So tell us a little about Shabbos, your own feelings. Yishkerach, Rabbi Jacobson. Firstly, I cannot thank you and your Rebbe Shandy enough for answering the call and coming here. It's one of my favorite lines of Tehillim. And the fact that Hashem decides who goes where, when, and for what purpose. And sometimes we know why we are where we are, sometimes we don't know. But uh, 35 years ago is when I was Zeche to begin my Shlichas here. I had no idea that it's going to take 33 years of preparation for what happened last Shabbos. My 35 years of building the community, bringing in as many Yidin as possible, was in essence all a preparation for a single moment. Some people would tell me, Rabbi, I am so sorry you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and that's why you got shot up. And I would turn around and say, you got it all wrong. I was in the right place in the right time. That's why I'm alive today. So I should be able to impart with everyone and help my congregation, our family, and the whole world as much as possible to be able to learn from this experience. I, I the Gashmis physically had to be at war. I had to be in the line of fire. I had to experience this to be able to be where I was. 
and where I am now. If you were to ask me where I was the last seven days, mostly, I don't know. It was a sort of outer body experience, having a brush with death, of feeling at a moment as if I was in the middle of a program. 2019, there were moments I felt like it was 1943. The shouts, the scream, the panic, the horror, the death. This was a page out of the Holocaust days. It was a time warp. I'm, I'm, I'm part of a shechita, part of a massacre. And then in a split of a moment, you get transformed and you realize we're not going to let this darkness prevail. And I call it Rebbe mode. You just, you just switch. And you have to make that choice. Are you going to flee and hide and curl in a corner and cry? Or are you going to become Erebus Chassid in the overt? And it's a split-second decision. I'm facing the gun face-to-face. -face. What do I do? Do I just hide in a corner so I don't get shot? Or do I flip around? And, and, and that switch, I didn't turn it. Some greater forces turned that switch on me. And all of a sudden, 57 years of education, of of pickling in the juices of Tyre and Hasidus somehow just kicked in and put me into a high gear. And things just just happened in in an automatic fashion, basic reflexes. And uh, and here we are, the, the, we just came from Dr. Harold K's Shiva, he finished the Shiva, and helping them rise up from Shiva and uh, trying to quantify their pain, their loss, and to put in perspective how the Hannah's mother and Howard's wife is died al Kiddush Hashem. And what that means, the perspective of it, that from what I understand, when a person is born already, the day of death is already designed. It's, it's already predicted. But what's not predicted is where and how the person is going to die. And that is a schus. I mean, Lori, I mean, she was going to pass away because that's her, she finished her shlichus on this world. She was 60 years old, and it was her time. She could have died with a car accident or some other tragic, some disease or whatnot. But she didn't. She died of Kiddush Hashem. And to put it in the perspective that when she was in the lobby and the gunman came in, he was looking for a victim. If Lori wasn't there at that place at that time, the lobby would have been empty. He would have gone into the sanctuary. He would have gone into the shul where we were all getting ready for Yisker. Shechita could have been insurmountable. But Lori was there, and she absorbed those bullets. And there was, I would say, a split moment of darkness when those bullets shot out. That lasted seconds. Immediately, the miracles started to flow. The miracles started to happen. Just the fact that I got away with losing a finger and injuring the other finger and the rest of my body it, it remained whole. Yeah, that, that itself is a miracle of insurmountable measures. 
the fact that Igor people are able to escape, I mean, it, the, the details is so impacted with miracles that it really was a Zahayim Asashem Megillah the Nasachavai. This was a day that Hashem really showed us, revealed His kindness and goodness to us. We're still trying to figure out the paradox. How do you celebrate so many miracles and yet you lost Lori and the family lost Lori? And we'll get well work through that somehow. Okay, I spent with you on the sacred ground where Jewish blood was shed, the Shabbos. I, I mean, it's like I'm, I myself can't even put it into words. What, any reaction to the Shabbos, or you're still too much in the moment to even be able to comment? And I, I'm respectfully asking because anything you can say could perhaps give us all some strength. The Shabbos. The Shabbos was, <coughs> excuse me, once again. A, a defining moment. Okay, I'm the shleach, I'm the rabbi. I have all the rights to walk into shul as I'm excruciating pain. And I can have my tears flowing and, and lament and, and look for mercy and compassion. I had all the rights to do that. And then I thought of the Rebbe, how he would walk into 770 right after the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, all the other tragedies that we endured, the Rebbe would walk in with such stolts and stand tall. And as a chassid, you, you, you say to yourself, what would the Rebbe want me to do at this moment? And I walked into shul with that energy, with that attitude that I don't care what injuries I got, let's infuse, let's wake up the crowd, let's help them heal, let the healing begin. And we I mean, the outpour of love from everyone was amazing. When you and Rebson Shandy jumped on the plane at a spear of a phone call, it was amazing. And then I hear that the Raven brothers, two beautiful chazanim, on their own, it's like, we're going. He actually, he called up first, and I said, no, 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 we'll be okay. And then his younger brother said, no, we're going. And Fitz said, we're going. And, and they came. The was cheerful and nice. But after Bayi B'Shalim, we all turned around. And kind of turning around and looking at the Shekhinah, welcoming Shabbos Malkasa. The Olam started to feel the Simcha beginning. That was kind of the turning point. And we started to sing some songs. And then one song led to another, to another. And it felt like some hysteria again. There were circles of dancing, all the women dancing on the Mechitza side, and the men had five different circles going on. And there were strangers who I've never seen. I'd say the majority of the people, 60% of the people I never knew, they were there. And they got into the spirit. They got into the moment. It felt and like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Simchas Torah all rolled into one. All rolled into one. But, but, and I looked at the faces of people dancing with tears and, and the hugs and everything. And uh, it, was, it was indescribable, emotionally, and the, the, you started to feel the healing is beginning. And, and we didn't want to just translate dancing. for the audience that may not know. When Shabbat comes, it brings the healing. It brings the healing. And, yeah. and we felt the spirit of Shabbos really, really moved us. And that was kind of a beginning uh, where, where, where Some of your family where. came from Australia, from other parts of the world, other parts of the country. It was really something. Yeah, um, you know, since you you mentioned it, if I may, I'm receiving a lot of questions myself. 
people watching which, what you're going through. And of course, I always get questions about uh, how you deal with challenges. So I'll just read one question that someone wrote. Rabbi Goldstein, after your harrowing experience, staring death in the eyes, where do you find the formidable energy and courage to be such a powerful and tireless advocate of spreading light and goodness? Can you, can you put it into words? No. <laughs> no. It's inexplainable. I can't explain it myself. If you ask me to analyze it and to say, where's it coming from? There's so many people out there who have lost families, lost, talk about the Holocaust, and you don't always see that. So, you know, when you see it, not that you should be a specimen, but it becomes an unbelievable lesson. You look around the world today, America, there's so much, um, so much selfishness and so much self-absorption with foolishness. And here you see literally death in your eyes and you rise to the occasion, the best of a human being, the best of someone creating the divine image. If we could bottle this into a formula, this would be, you know, this, it's life-changing. That's why I'm asking, and I, I hope you don't mind me pushing you. Not at all, because I'm trying to process it myself. I'm trying to understand it myself. Why, why didn't I fall apart? Why didn't I become frighteningly scared and paralyzed by this? But you're standing at the White House lawn, you know, and millions of people are watching you. You open your mouth, and I'm saying this not to flatter you. And you say every word is, is, is gems about how we should look at this, thanking God for gratitude, thanking your dear Rebbe for teaching you how to deal with darkness and light and composure. I mean, it was like so... I know it wasn't scripted, so it was coming from the deepest guts of you. I mean, you did mention earlier, growing up around the Rebbe, maybe you should describe, if you can, what that meant. What did the Rebbe mean to you, and how did it, like... You know, we all have teachers and mentors and rabbis. I mean, I know what you're talking about because I grew up in the same environment, but it would be good to articulate at times... We have to some, you know, foundations of buildings are invisible. You only see the structure. But then at times you want to know what's going on, what's in the foundation, the roots of the tree. Maybe just describe something you, you know, you could share. You're a young man. I remember you when you were much younger. And we were all much younger, absorbing, being shaped in those impressionable years by the force, the Rebbe, Amosha Rebbeinu, a leader of that stature. Maybe just describe a bit, because there's no question, as you said, you went into that gear into that mode. How would you put that into words? I mean, you're here in Poway for 33 years, 35 years, because of this man called the Lubavitcher. So clearly he changed your life. You didn't go into business. You didn't go to make yourself a life, comfortable life. You dedicated your life in this community to build it. As you said, no one ever expected this to happen. So clearly this is your, what runs in your blood is that which you were shaped by. So maybe you can just put it in your own words. I think people would really be inspired. You know, you said, Dear Rebbe, my beloved Rebbe by, on the White House lawn. I know people have asked me, who's this Rebbe? What, why is he so beloved? Who's this man that's not even here physically that's giving Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein such power to be able to rise to the occasion? Well, I <clears throat> come from a family of Kneinara 10. My oldest brother, Abarla, has been running a Chabad house in Ann Arbor, Michigan for 40 plus Ann years. Arbor. Ann Arbor, yeah. Michigan. So he's number one. Now I'm always down number eight on the bottom of the line. So when you come from a large family like that, you get to pick and choose who's going to be your mentor. Who are you going to learn from? Who are you going to connect with? 
And my brother of Arla and I has always had this special connection. And he grew up with the Rebbe since, he, since the 50s. So he had a lot longer time than I had with the Rebbe. I was born in 61. And until I became a little a young man to start to appreciate what the Rebbe is, which was already in the mid-60s. So having grown up in a home, my father, known as Uncle Yossi, was an amazing Makusha to the Rebbe. Makusha means connected and attached and devoted. And, and more than that. Yeah. So the home that I grew up in, the focal point was the Rebbe. And the nerve center was 770. That, that, that's where our life was all about. I remember as a kid... So I'm saying this Chabad World Headquarters. Sorry. In Crown Heights, you were saying, no, I'm just no, no, translating for the... Correct. So as a kid, the Rebbe would have talks on Saturday afternoons. And I would join. I'd be seven, eight years old. At that time, I didn't understand a word of Yiddish. But I was mesmerized to stand and watch the Rebbe talk and everyone listening so closely and the songs that were singing was always so inspiring and I used to take a little cup of wine and I used to hold it and wait for to make eye contact with the Rebbe and you would have that eye contact with the Rebbe and that all of a sudden developed an enduring love to see because when we looked in the eyes of a tzaddik and he looked at you, had that split second eye contact and he picked you out from everyone. A, a relationship begins. Um, I remember my, we used to have a contest when we were kids. Who's going to get up early enough to run to 770 headquarters to hold the door open for the Rebbe so he shouldn't have to open the door by himself? And I used to get up extra early and wait. What was special was when the Rebbe walked up the steps, he would look at me and nod his head, say good Shabbos. And you had your moment with the Rebbe. And these were all the building blocks of developing the connection. And as I, as I got older, I was able to learn Yiddish because my parents are both American. Yiddish wasn't their first language. But after going to yeshiva and listening to Farings, you start to be able to understand more. And little did I know that all those experiences was all a preparation. I remember once when I was probably fifth grade, it was one of those epiphany moments that, you know, I want to I wanna join the Rebbe's army. I want to be one of the Rebbe's foot soldiers. And the concept fifth of... Grade? I think it was fifth grade because I got in trouble because <laughs> we were studying Talmud and I was designing what my Chabad house would look like one day <laughs> instead really? of learning. And How far? Fifth grade is uh, fifth grade ten years old? Around ten, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was right after around the there's time. A look, there's this Chabad house look uh, I wish I could find the Gemara. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember my mindset was then already, I really want to be one of those. And the main reason was because you felt how much the Rebbe cared so much about all the Jewish people and and the Rebbe was pressing us about the idea of Avas Yisrael of really loving every single Jew no matter what they look like no matter how observant they were and those days a lot of 
hippies would come to 770. And it looked very strange to us. When you grow up in an insular uh, community, everyone with black hats, black jackets, and then you see hippies coming with all different colors and looks, and, it was, and you saw how the Rebbe embraced them. And, and it resonated. And say, you know, this is something I want to do. And it was when I was around Bar Mitzvah age, around 74, as the Rebbe started the outreach campaigns. And I took that very to heart. And that became a priority because it enabled me to begin talking to people that are not from where I grew up. People who did not grow up religious at all. When I'm 13 years old, I would go to Manhattan and start asking people, excuse me, are you Jewish? And then I would get full gamut of responses. What's it, your business? I wish I was. Sure I am. And, and, and you start to develop a taste what to, to what it means to do. It's interesting you say 1974, it was right the Yom Kippur War. If you remember, in 73, there was that tragic attack, terrorist attack on Ma'alot in northern Israel, where children, a school, unfortunately, like almost a prelude to what we have seen. And the Rebbe turned that into one of the great campaigns of putting mezuzah on every door, which is a source of protection. So I'm just when you mentioned '74, um, 2019, it's like uh, it's amazing. It's incredible you bring that up. That was an impetus. I'm going to say a name. Tell me if you remember it. Jay Brzezinski. Yeah, okay. of course he was the Secretary of State or the. Of... There is. They played a recording of the attack. And I remember the soldiers saying, and you hear the bullet sounds as, as the counterattack was occurring. I remember listening to that whole Who was Jay radio. Brzezinski? He was a reporter. Oh, so, so I'm, I'm confused. Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize. I, I, may, I may confuse it also. No, no, no. no. I think you're right. You're right. I, I don't, but, but it's one of those memories that so can seal the boots And you have the... Yeah. And, and it, it had left such an impression on me. I mean, I was, I was, I was sobbing from it. Because he had the live feed as the Israelis were overcoming the, the Palestinians in Ashman. And, and it was kids. And it, it was it was very riveting. It was certain events in life you don't forget. Right. That one I remember. That one I remember so clearly. And it, was, and it moved me to the core. And we know the Rebbe cried and cried for those loss of innocent children. But he didn't let, as you said, the tears to become the end of the story. The tears have to feed... And he created a major campaign that till this day, millions of doors have a mezuzah. Yeah. And then the same thing after the Yom Kippur War, the campaigns that you described. So literally your formative years was the early 70s, mid-70s, yeah. when the Rebbe was beginning to launch these campaigns that would reach millions and millions of people. Okay, you know, it's all, it's all in the unconscious, but it's clearly... I remember with Malot, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, that when after the event they went to check the mezuzahs on the doors and those who unfortunately got hurt and killed their mezuzahs were not kosher and I remember something I, w I will mention because I think many people may not be aware the Rebbe made it clear he compared it actually to a helmet yeah. in other words it's not a magic pill God protects us and when you bring God's blessings into your life it's a source of protection it's like a helmet. It's not a. It, 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 it uh, maximizes, minimizes the risk and maximizes the protection. I want to ask you something. Since 
the audience is very diverse. And I don't mean to be skeptical, but I want to use, use the skeptical. Now, you're here 33 years, and you talk about the Rebbe, and I fully appreciate and understand. What happens if someone, like a skeptic, says, who's this Rebbe? You know, this like, it sounds a little like cult worship. Have you ever had to deal with that? And just, or, you know, or just your love of the Rebbe was so, but was so uh, visceral that people just contagious picked it up. Did you ever have to deal with explaining it? Maybe the early years, but people got to learn that the Rebbe to me was like a father figure. Yeah. It wasn't like a guru or right. leader. Yeah. It was a father. The relationship was like a son to a father. I would write to him like I would write to my father who was overseas. You, you would write whenever he had questions or, the, or uh, any issues. I mean, and, and he, he would. I was 14 years old. And this is how life sometimes... No, no, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. Because you said on the, that, in that talk, the, my beloved Rebbe, my dear Rebbe, it was clear. It was that love. But people who don't know who is this man, I'd love to have met him. You know, I wish I had a father like that. See the images of you, literally your hands and your arms at the Rebbe's Ohel. Just last week when you came from the White House, you went to the Rebbe's gravesite. Again, so powerful. I mean, I could... As I said, I relate to it. And the father is your father, even if he's physically not here. The love is there. It just, I think it's, like, you know, it would be a great, how do we introduce this Rebbe to people so they can also gain strength like you have? That would be the... Well, to me, I think, or I know, the Rebbe gave, the God gave our generation a leader because we needed it. In 1950, we were just rising from the ashes of the Holocaust. The world was <clears throat> distraught. The people were ditching their Judaism. They say they're throwing the towels and filling over the boat as they were coming here. And God did not want Judaism to disappear. So he gave us a Rebbe who rose to the occasion and took a generation that was so downtrodden and, and decimated and, and demoralized and just brought him up and um, and and when you want to live for a cause we're all created by God for a purpose living an aimless life without a cause could be very empty when you live for a cause and a purpose that's to do good to help others you really have a, every day a fulfilled day and to me the Rebbe lived by example he worked for those 45 years from the same place, never went on a vacation. He showed up early in the morning, left late at night, or, or stayed up all night. And the Rebbe's individual care to every single individual is exemplary. There's no other human being that, that did that, that showed, exhibited such love and care and concern about everyone throughout the whole world. So when you have someone who lives like that, yes, everyone needs someone to emulate someone that could be your guiding light and that's what the Rebbe is to us and you get it from his teachings when I study and review the notes of his Fabrengans of his gatherings which you had the honor to be the Rebbe's personal scribe so all of your work is being studied by thousands and thousands of followers throughout the world you get to embody what is what his message was and you resonate with it because you know him and you feel it. So when you read something and you say, gosh, you know, how do I apply it to real life? It shouldn't just remain an academic, but bring it to real life. So what you're saying really, I mean, if I can perhaps uh, uh, embellish a bit, 
you know, because I think about it myself a lot. As good as an idea is in a book, even in the Torah itself, and inspiring and powerful and godly, but when you see it embodied and personified in a human being, the Rebbe, as was Moshe, Moses, and perhaps that's why God sent the Moses. Why didn't he just give them the book? Because a book is a book, and a human being is a human being. And just, you see it live, you see it breathing, you see it pulsating. Would you, is that, is that a good way to uh, describe it? Like a walking Torah, not just a, a living Torah, not just a, a written Torah. The Rebbe would always say, the way I, I understood it is, not to leave the words on the paper, but to put into action. Take it from the academics into real life and to apply it. Apply Chassidus. <laughs> yeah. Put it into action. What you learn and you study, actually do it. Yeah. So I'm going to just, I have a few more questions I want to ask, if I may. We're living, it's, it's, everything is divine providence. We're now in a time coming literally from Pesach, one of the holiest holidays. Liberation, miracles. This happened the last day of Pesach. Right afterwards, Shabbos, we're reading about sanctification, the children of Aaron, the death, after their death, how they sanctify as they got closer. This coming week, this, this week we just began, Kedoshish, you shall be sacred because God is sacred. I mean, you can't ignore the, the connections, literally playing itself out here in Poway. Um, today is Rosh Chodesh year, literally a new moon. A new moon is a, is, is a rebirth after a dying moon, so to speak. The moon goes extinct. It's Rosh Chodesh Ir. Ani Hashem Rofecha Ir is an acronym in Hebrew for the three words Ani Hashem Rofecha Aleph Yud Resh. So I, God, am your healer. It's tomorrow, after Rosh Chodesh will be the second of year, which in Chabad is the Rebbe Marash's Stalkus, the Chatchila Riba. I'm just, you know, the convergence of all these days. I was just wondering how you would, you know, I mean, everyone, every one of them is a story of their own. But I always try to connect the weekly, the Rebbe told us, live with the times. The Alter Rebbe said, live with the times, which is not the New York Times, as we know. It's with the times, what we read in the Torah. And Torah gives us power, and the Rebbe interpretates, and the Rebbe interpreting the Torah. Any thoughts maybe on the Chatchila Rebbe? You know, because I see it playing itself out here. It's not just words again. You just gave me the words to explain <laughs> what <laughs> happened to me when I saw the Shura. What was that? that is exactly the words. I went to Lechatchila River. Um, I could have gone down Arunta. I could have gone down Ananda. And that's the message of Lechatchila River. Is uh, The translation is that sometimes when you've got an obstacle in front of you, you have a choice. First you consider maybe I go around, maybe I can go under the obstacle, maybe I can negotiate with the obstacle. Or as the Chabad Rebbe Marash would say, you just jump over. Right. Just, just don't, don't negate any other option. Just So if you had to speak now for a group of, of, of people who have suffered a tragedy, I mean, you have, this is your own community, but let's say elsewhere, and they say to you, where do you muster strength when all seems lost? When, when, when uh, uh, unspeakable loss and so on. So you're saying... I have a Rebbe, I have a Torah, and so on. But they ask you, what what can we do to dig deeper into our own souls to get such strength? What is it that you can say, if I may? Well, I 
And I hope again, I'm not. I, I, we were taught that you have to push somebody to get the best. So I'm pushing. I have my own moments. And I have a lot of moments I'm going to have to process moving forward. I, I have been given the worst hand of life by watching a terrorist violate your own shul, your sanctuary. This evil force entered our Kedesh HaKadoshim, our holy temple. And I got, I got to see it face to face. He was just 10 feet away. He violated everything that humanity stands for. I, I was scared. I was frightened. And I was empowered at the same time. And you have that split second to how do you react to this? And what's interesting was, and I think you pointed it out to me, after a whole week of interviews and, gr and grilling anchors and trying to entrap you all different questions, and I didn't even realize it myself, there wasn't one moment that I expressed anger, revenge, or blame, or any of that. My, my subconscious didn't go there. I just didn't go there. And I think there's a reason for that. Is because, what is it going to help? How is it going to help by going there? And if I go there, how am I going to get out of there? So don't go there. It's not going to change the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground right now is, I got a congregation that's hurting. I got a community that's devastated. I got a world that's in shock. How the ugly head of anti-Semitism has shown itself once again in the overt and and one shul gets attacked, all shuls get attacked. That that is the mode that we need to be in. Look, you've been trained to be a selfless soldier. So I guess really what I'm saying is can a selfless soldier teach a selfish world how to be selfless? <laughs> because once the tragedy strikes, it's very difficult. Like they say, the strong the trees that withstand the storm are strong before the storm. It's very hard to build it when it's if you don't have it. So I think this sounds to me. The real is how do we teach people who have been so not trained to think I'm here to serve and give and trained to think that it's all about me and then suddenly, and no one should know of this, devastation strikes, where do you, where do you get the strength? They have to go into a place they're not even used to. I introduced you last night to the founder of our Chabad. His name is Dr. Ray Polyakov. Right. In 1984, he called up Rabbi Fratkin and asked to start a Chabad here. And I stayed at his house, and we used to walk two miles to a rented storefront. And he's a gem of gems. He's the head of the emergency department at Kaiser, just a gem of a human being. In 2006, his 18-year-old only daughter dies. She was in school, and they're at a party, and whatever went wrong went wrong. He got the call, and he told me years ago, the reason he became a doctor was so he should be able to protect his family. He should know how to heal his family. He goes down, and he sees he can't resuscitate his own daughter. He goes home, and I go home to his house. I actually happened to be in Australia at the time for my niece's wedding, and I got the call. I flew back. The very first thing Ray Polkov did when he got home 
and put on his talus and tefillin. I was astounded. Number one, according to religious law, he's not obligated to pray. He's in a state of onan that he doesn't onan, have to pray. Right. He put on the talus and tefillin and he prayed. And I asked him afterwards, after Shiva, I said, Ray, I was going to ask you a question. How, how did you do this? And he told me such a poignant lesson that I've learned so much from him. He says, Rabbi, you cannot remain standing on the spot of grief or you'll get stuck and consumed. You have to step away from that spot. You get Shiva, granted, spend the Shiva days mourning and grieving, but don't get stuck and consumed. You cannot change what happened, but you can change what's going to happen. And, and that was so insightful. And he said it wasn't just for himself. It was for his wife and kids that they need to see that we're not going to get stuck and consumed by the by the devastation. Amazing. It reminds me, I remember once giving a class. And at the end of the class, two women come over to me. And one, one, one was a very beautiful face, but then I saw as she got closer that it was restructured. And, and she says to me, I was in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, one of the earliest uh, terrorist attacks on a Friday where they put a bomb near a, uh, in a cafe, if you may remember. It was one of the first, so it was definitely a lot of casualties. She says, it, blew, it, uh, it took many of my friends' lives. My face was blown off. I lost my hearing. I lost my smell. I lost part of my eyesight. And I was in the hospital for months and months. Listen to this, you won't believe it. It's just what you said, Alyssa. And she said to me, and I was in Israel, my parents didn't know because they would never let me go because they were not interested in religion. I was interested in studying in a, some Judaism. We grew up in an assimilated home. So I told them I'm going to the East. Middle East, far, they don't know which East. They saw me covered in blood on CNN in the hospital. Now, of course, they came and they flew and they didn't. She said, what? I was in the hospital in pain. I lost my face. I lost everything. I said to God, why don't you take my life? Why would you leave me a wretched skeleton? And I came here to study your Torah. An American girl. What? I was so angry at God. And then she says to me, one morning I woke up and I had this energy from somewhere. I have no idea from where. And I said to myself, I'm going to survive. I'm going to rebuild my life. These are the words I'll never forget. She said, faith. You don't appreciate faith until you have nothing left but faith. Everything was ripped away. And when you say it, it reminds me that ultimately, let's be honest, I think what's resonating is that profound faith in us, in God, the profound faith you learn from the Rebbe in God, in everything that happens. I mean, I'm just reacting to, you know, I mean, I've heard you speak, and I, but as we're sitting here, I'm just trying to, I put it into words. You know, sometimes you have to express the inexpressible. We wish we don't have to. We just have it in our gut, but sometimes it has to be said, because I think people are taken by this. They don't have the words. I mean, I'm speaking to people, they say, I don't know what it is, but something about it is resonating, you know, some tr- some higher truth. And that is a, uh, it's at the expense of a life, but it's a tremendous merit to all that's happened here. So then what do you say to people who say, where's God in all of this? Okay, you say God does miracles, and he did many miracles here. Many were saved. It could have been, as you pointed out, al-tiftah we don't even want to say. 
Where was God with Lori? Why didn't he protect Lori? You know? Why was there no miracle for Lori? I mean, again, I don't, I don't, I, I'm really articulating what people ask. And some come from, you know, I frankly, I don't appreciate unhealthy skepticism where people just blame God for everything. Like some said, I don't blame God. The Holocaust, I learned that the only one I can trust is God. I can't trust humans. But still, some people say, you know, where's God in all? Why don't Jews, Jews argue with God and we're really upset, but they don't, they don't blame God at the end of the day. Where's God, you know? I mean, how do you, I know it's inexplicable, but just any thought that comes to mind. I think it has to be a fair question. Well, we can't just believe that God closed his eyes when Larry got shot and opened his eyes to save me. Right. I mean, God doesn't close and open his eyes. Right. If you want me to rationalize, you know. No. Lori was going to pass away no matter what. The plan, that was the that higher was, that plan. That was her plan. And, and God gave her a kindness. She's been glorified <laughs> those are the posters she's been glorified yeah it's all over this, this show all over the Chabad house yeah if she would have died in a car wreck God forbid she wouldn't have the impact on the world that she had because of that was God there when the shooter came in absolutely unequivocally my life is spared I had bullets with flowing by me albeit my fingers got blown away I still feel the rush of the bullets and the smell of the gunpowder and and, and, and this, the loud sounds God was there pushing the bullets away from me I mean centimeters away my heart, my kidneys, my vital organs my hands, my anything could have gone I, I, I couldn't have I wouldn't have been there because God, God was absolutely there Moses had the same question. God, I, I know you were there. I just want to know why. And why I you let the evil be done to your people. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And, uh, and even a man of faith, myself, I'm going to have to sort through those questions. Of course. But it's not going to paralyze me. It's not going to make me angry and upset with God. That's well said. That's so exactly right. We suffer and we question and we challenge. But we're not going to be defined by our, uh, by our questions and by our I remember reading once a letter from the Rebbe to a Holocaust survivor, a doctor. And the Rebbe says, you know, the big question, why? So the Rebbe says, if God wants us to know why, he'll tell us. If he doesn't tell us why, it means we don't need to know. We ask, what are we going to do about it? That's our focus. And at the end of the letter, the Rebbe said, writes, you may think I'm just being intellectual. I too am a Holocaust survivor. I lost my brother, my grandmother, my brother-in-law, sister-in-law, and other family members. You, know, you rarely see the Rebbe's identify. But, well, yeah, I mean, look, the Jewish people are here. We've suffered like no one has suffered. And we're here. We're standing. I'm limping a bit, but we're here in this long march. So, Let me share with you a memory. Sure. And I'm sure you were there. 1982, maybe? Okay. When Moses asked God, when I come to Egypt, they're going to ask me, what's your name? What should I tell them? So the Rebbe asked, how did Moses know what they're going to ask? And what was God's answer? What will be, will be. 
Just tell them who I am with you. And the Rebbe says, how does that an answer? Moses is coming to Egypt. He's going to face the people. They're going to ask him, you know, what's your name? What's God? Who's God? And we're suffering. Where's God, right? So I don't remember that one. I remember it because the Rebbe started to cry and sob. So Moses was concerned he's going to come to Egypt. And he's going to ask, they're going to ask, God, you tell me there's a God there? What kind of God could sit in heaven and watch Pharaoh, Pharaoh swimming in the blood of children that were slaughtered? What kind of, what kind of God could watch from heaven all the terrible things that happened in this world? What kind of God, what kind of God has a name who could watch our our slavery, our torture, our pain. And, and, and Ezra is saying it, he's just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And he answered, you know what you told him? It's a God who's going to suffer with you. It's a God who feels your pain. It's a God that's not disconnected from us. He's with us. He sees it. It pains him as it pains us. And he is going to pull us out of that agony and pain as well. It doesn't answer the question why, but it answers to know that we're not alone, that there's a God in heaven who's holding our hand through these most difficult times. We're not alone, yeah, Lo alone. The worst thing is loneliness. You know, when, when Jeremiah bemoans and laments and lamentations and echo, the destruction of the temple, he begins not with the destruction not with the deaths, with loneliness. Eicha Yashva Badad, how sad is it that she sits alone? Because when you're not alone, you can deal with, you can, you can endure anything. When you feel alone, which is what pain does, like no one, no one can understand me, no one's there, no one can feel my pain, that is far worse than the pain. So if someone holds your hand, I don't know who it was, there was a Rebbe that once said, I don't think a Chabad Rebbe, to someone who suffered a tragedy, he said, I don't have answers for you, but I can cry with you. I have no question. The talks that... I, I don't, the 1982, I think I vaguely remember, because I remember the area, but I remember Tuba Shvat, the 15th of Shvat, Tav Shalamates, which is also a recording. I think that was a Shabbos that you're describing. Yeah, correct. Shemois, maybe. Yeah, that's maybe correct. Maybe. Yeah, yes. It was t t 15th of Shvat, 79, and Rabba 83, Tav these are crying, like why God is concealing himself. What do you want from these people? You know, you concealed yourself so well, we can't find you anymore. And, son, and the children are looking for God on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. I mean, heart-wrenching. And when you were speaking to God at the opening of the urn, it reminded me, you know. And this is a Rebbe, like you know, a Rebbe who's connected. He's not crying out of desperation, he's crying out of... And, uh, and there's a strength to that. There's almost a strength when you say, I don't have an answer. I think one of the, the Belzer, old Belzer Rebbe once said, even if God were to come to me and wants to give me an explanation for the Holocaust, I don't want to hear. I want an explanation why one and a half million innocent children were, were gassed. Who wants, who, I, you know, the explanation is going to help us. So there's a certain sanctity to be able to stand before God and say, you, you've wounded me. And you've hurt me, but I'm but I'm yours, and you're mine. And we have some way we must 
continue to fight for what, what we believe. I mean, look, I'm sitting here with you. You're missing an index finger. And instead of bemoaning that, you talk about the finger that your father, that you were a child. And he taught us all that song. And all the children's rallies and the parades. Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Point up, yeah. up, down, down, right, left, and all around. And, you know, I mean, most people would say, okay, I understand, in six months from now you'll philosophize and wax eloquent about your... But no, here you are, bandaged up, and you're showing such strength. I, I feel that everybody would love to know. I mean, everybody should be intact, and we should always never have any wounds. But we all have our challenges. We all have our scars. And how you look at a scar, instead of saying, I feel so deficient, no, I feel in a way defiant, that I will even now, more, more than ever, commit to pointing and finding God in this dark world. I don't know if it's a question or just a statement. But well, <laughs> maybe it's part of my insanity, being proud that I have a battle scar. I met the ultimate mission. I sacrificed. I, I survived it. But this is going to define me the rest of my life. It's going to be a memory. I'm going to remember the moment. I'm going to remember the recovery. And I'm going to remember the challenges. And I'm going to remember the accomplishments. And it's part of my life's journey that Hashem has for me to, to build me who I am. My life has changed forever. I'll never be the same emotionally, physically, spiritually. Hopefully I'll grow from this in, in, uh, in different ways. But... What's the alternative? Yeah, yeah, there is an alternative. That's, that's for sure. That's for sure. That's the. But this is something we have to teach people. You know, tragically, I had to deal a few weeks ago before Passover with a young man's family who the young man took his life. He came to a point where he felt there is no other option. And I say to myself, so how do we teach our young men and women? There is another option. There's no such thing as a finality. There's no such thing as surrender or resignation. We have always figured out, and there's young people today that are so depressed and so despair, they feel it's there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And even if there is a light, they'll say it's the light of the oncoming train. You know. So to me, words that you can say can literally prevent people who will give up. And unfortunately, there are people right now as we speak. I hope they're listening. If not, we'll get into that. That that have that element of despair. And how do you explain to them? You have a soul. God blessed you with life. No matter how bad things are, there's always more. And they don't feel that. Well, it's the concept of perhaps taking life too for granted. Yeah. If you have a near-death experience, like I had, the next morning saying those words, thanking God for being alive, has a whole different definition. Yeah. It hasn't really even sunk in that I'm on borrowed time right now. Again, my, my lease was extended, hopefully indefinitely. Yes. Uh, but, we, uh, we... <laughs> but when you have a brush with death like this, yeah, I've had many, <clears throat> many conversations with the euthanasia and other situations and people in this sphere. I always say, you could always die later. <laughs> Look, the rebel once wrote to a person who was contemplating suicide. It's not humorous, but it's interesting. He says, your destiny has already been determined. If you take your life, that doesn't mean you're not going to come back again. 
and you're going to have to live through whatever All God wants you to live through. So what's the point? Yeah. It's an interesting yeah. twist. But you know, since you mentioned Modani, the morning powerful prayer that unfortunately we don't always appreciate, return, thank you for returning my soul to me. That every morning you don't need to be shot, you don't need to be hurt to remember. So one of the things you've been really advocating, which also is extremely powerful, you said at the White House lawn as well, moment of silence. And of course it's taken from the river. Maybe you can just like, why do you feel that? Why did you associate it with that? I mean, I understand why, but I think maybe we can spell it out. Well, growing up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn Yeshiva world, you really are insulated from the outside political scene. Right. So I really didn't know much about politics except about Washington. But as I started to emerge, Ronald Reagan was one of the presidents that I started to read. 1980, 1980, yeah. yeah. So here I'm starting to follow and see what's going on in the White House. I was 20 years old then, about 2021. And then he got shot. And it's, 81, yeah. It was my JFK shot moment. Oh. Ronald Reagan. You remember where you were when you right, heard. Right, right. And then I was following, you know, the Rebbe and Ronald Reagan had an interesting relationship. They were both up in age. They're in the 70s, both world leaders. And Ronald Reagan had a tremendous respect for the Rebbe. And uh, to me also, seeing a president of the United States who acted presidential, and that's uh, Ronald Reagan when he spoke. And besides being a great actor, he was also a great president. He was humorous. So I, I I followed as first president to follow. I think he was a better president than an actor, they yeah, say. That's I, especially <laughs> towards the end. But the Rebbe gave a, an answer to the world because of what happened, that our president of the United States America should be shot right in the open air. And the Rebbe recognized that there's a fundamental flaw in our educational system. And the Rebbe then introduced the concept of moment of silence in the public school system. There used to be prayer in the school system, and then that was taken away somewhere in the 50s, I believe. So you have a couple decades where kids are coming to school and there's no, no exposure or discussion about why were you created? Do you have a purpose in life? Is there accountability for you do? How do you value life? So the Rebbe came up with the idea, I'm not going to ask to introduce a prayer in public school because that's going to open up diversity of all different religions and prayers. Let's do something that's universal that everyone could use. Is Let every child at the beginning of the day pause and just think. You can think whatever you want to think about. But a child is going to ask, what should I be thinking about? And if the parents are tuned in to real life, they'll say, think about who you are. Think about why you were created. Think about how what you do has effect on the people around you. And think about something higher than you. And that is the campaign of the Rebbe started. And the value of life and the dignity of life. Yeah. So, so that, that, and the Rebbe was talking very, very strong about it. And when the Rebbe comes up with a campaign, you want to be a partner with it. Right. You want to deliver the goods. You want to be the one to say, you know, I, I'm helping the Rebbe because you want to help him his whole life is about saving the world about saving humanity so you want to be a part of that so you were in your early 20s then right, right. you were right. not here yet in no, no, no. No. wow 
And uh, so that stuck in my mind. That was planted there. Right. The Rebbe really wanted that. So essentially, basically, milestones of your life can be associated with how you were shaped by the Rebbe's thinking, how a leader thinks, how a spiritual leader thinks, a, God, a man of God thinks about helping the world. And, and every even the catastrophes and tragedies have become forces of, of identifying the root of the problem, not just the symptoms. In the moment of silence, you see, it's, 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 catch, it's, ta- it's getting some traction. People are picking up on it. One of the lines I've quoted a lot in the recent week started when I was 14 years old. I was in yeshiva in Brouard in France. And I wrote the Rebbe a letter that I'm in yeshiva and I'm trying to concentrate on my studies, but I have intruding thoughts and how do I deal with those? And I asked the Rebbe a blessing that I should deal with that uh, as I uh, emerge. And one day the head of the yeshiva calls me and says, I want you to immerse yourself in a mikvah. I want you to purify yourself. In the ritual waters in, of uh, yeah, yeah. the middle of the day. And I ask him, what's going on? I don't know what he had in mind. What, what did I do? How impure am I? <laughs> and, and he was Rabbi Nissen. He was the old, old... Rabbi Nissen Demenov, the famous Mashpia leader, Hasidic. And he put on a, his black Shabbos coat. It was the middle of the week. It was just very strange for me. You know what it was? He calls me into his office and he shows me that a letter arrived from the Rebbe addressed to me personally. I'm 14 years old. Oh, yeah. It was, I don't know if you remember the old airmail letters. Yeah, those blue, the blue ones. Yeah. And he opens it up and he starts to read it to me. And the Rebbe addresses my name, Avrech Yisrael. He says, in answer what you're writing about your intruding thoughts, I want you to know the best advice is that you should fill up your mind with words of Torah, study things by heart. Right. And he uses a quote, if a little bit of light oh. pushes away a lot of darkness, so much more a lot of light. Oh, so, that, so that was... Uh... I was 14 years old. The Rebbe engraved in my brain a motto how I should live my life. And Rabbi Nissen says, okay, in two weeks from now, I want you to study by heart this discourse. <laughs> you will start to fill up the database. Ah, okay. And one mime after the next one. And, and going full circle. Right. These are the words on the White House now. When I was 14 years old, the Rebbe had a foresight that one, yeah. day, one day this guy is going to use those words. Amazing, because it wasn't just the microcosm, you individually it will be your whole life and a message to others. Look, I wish we could spend hours and hours. This is just scratching the surface. I want to just touch upon two, another question or two, and then, as they say with Simcha's Torah, at kana we'll take a, a break, and I want to give you the ability to rest. I really appreciate, not just for me, benefit of literally thousands of people. I mean, some things you said here I think are you know, mind-blowing. You need to absorb I know it's coming from your gut. You're still out of body, probably. Uh, I think I'm in body somewhat. Maybe not. So I was going to say, we're now literally concluding the month of Nissan. The month of Geula, redemption. month of Nissan means miracles. Double miracles, Nissan, Nissan. You know, what, how would you categorize, what lesson from this horrific event do we have? 
the last day of Pesach teaches us as we conclude this and go into the month of healing. Of healing. I mean, you said a lot. I'm just putting it in the context of the calendar, you know. Well, the Rebbe, I remember, used to always quote the name Nissen as a nun at the beginning. We just talked about Nissen, right, okay. Nissen, Nissen we talked about Nissen. Nissen. Maybe that's why <laughs> I, yeah. In two Nissens, right. one is miracles that happen in those days, right. and miracles that happen in now. Yeah. My miracle, Marshall's miracle, and I call it a magnanimous miracle. He had to. Many people ask, where there was God? Where are the miracles? You know, he says, but seas and the ten plays. Well, why don't you see any big miracles these days? Open your eyes. Look what happened at our Chavah house last Saturday. That is a miracle in our days. And, uh, and it's a miracle that leads into healing. Yeah, the month right. of the year. So that works well. So he gives us the miracle and helps us heal ourselves from the loss of glory. 28 years ago, and also this period of time, on Friday, was the 28th of Nisan. And the Rebbe, I'm sure you remember, we all remember, the Rebbe's impassioned plea, I did everything I can. Which he did. He gave us all the tools. And whatever reason, we need to do something. So I'm just thinking the whole context of it. I mean, at the end of the day, Mashiach is the world of goodness and kindness. A world where there'll be no longer evil and no longer pain. But we read in the Haftorah of that day of Pesach. The Haftorah you never ended up reading. And yeah. Maybe you did, I don't know. I did? No. Yeah, but was what it say, there'll be no more evil, no more destruction on my holy mountain in the world because it'll be a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Which we learn is, you know, Hasidic thought, the teachings, mystical, spiritual teachings that will, you know, what does knowledge have to do with destruction? Because when you really know God, you're not capable of hurting another person. You know, it's not just scientific knowledge. It's not abstract. It's not detached. So, you know, I think on a concluding note, what, what could each one of us do? in spirit of what this, this wake-up call that each of us can do, not just being better people, but also really finishing this job that we were given. The Rebbe gave us a mandate, and it hasn't been done. You know, I always feel like we haven't finished our homework. We didn't do what we had to do. I mean, obviously, we want God to have mercy and just take us out of this exile and bring Mashiach and everything, but you see, it's, not, it's still not there. What can each one of us do? I mean, you have a, a, a tremendous credibility to be able to and I ask that question also for me for all of us you know a uh, type of like takeaway message what each person can actually do to uh, obviously eradicate and, and eliminate the possibility of such evil but also to usher in a time where it will be a whole different world another reality which we believe we're on the threshold of well I look at the finger that's missing I think it's a finger that's going to talk to me for the rest of my life. And it's going to be a symbol to me. Number one, how vulnerable we really are. And number two, how heroic we can be, we need to be. I think we have a pocket of opportunity right now. The whole world knows about the synagogue attack, the Chabad power. The whole world, the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world, they know about this. I think it's a great opportunity for us to show the world, the Jewish world, and the non-Jewish world that Judaism is not about their attack. 
It's about the recovery. It's about what can we do to realize to be a light unto the nations. Doesn't mean to cower down, but to strengthen up. That if we have a chance to go out to talk to a fellow a colleague in the workplace who may not even be Jewish, say, and, and have a discussion, open a dialogue, talk about God. Talk about, look, wow, look what happened. Look at the miracles that happened in that synagogue. Talk about the seven oikos. Talk about the moment of silence. Just create a dialogue. Create a, a, a love atmosphere in the world. And every, every connection one makes with one person, it could have a ripple effect. And trying to introduce higher level of morals, accountability, and responsibility. The Shevas Yitzara. We were the whole world was created. We should live in harmony together. Uh, I, I think the irony that this happened on the last day of Pesach, the day we read the Haftarah about the coming Mashiach, is a is an incredible awakening to us to remind us the prize is yet to come. It's so close. But we all have to, have to do our part. It doesn't have to be on the White House lawn. It could be at your workplace. It could be at home. It could be in the street, in the subway. You see another person, do a nod, do a smile. Good morning, good afternoon. Open up a dialogue. Start talking about what we can do to make this world a better place. To help you do that, you need ammunition. And that's the Torah. You study Torah. You go online. Spend five minutes a day studying the precepts, the, the 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 values that were taught to us. You you'll be armed with the ability to really really be be a lighthouse and uh, and light people's lives up. And we could be Mashiach. You and I could be the ones to be Mashiach. Like Maimonides says, well, it's it's a tip of the scale. Scales are equal. One tip, the tipping point. I remember sitting at a Ferengen, and the Rebbe was mentioning your and said, imagine. If you are the one who had this one extra thought, this one extra action that tilted the scale, and 2,000 years of suffering has ended because of you. And then I've been powerless like that. And I walked away from that for bringing it to me. God, if I could be the one, imagine to bring the end of the suffering. And that ever meant you, 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 every single one of us. Wow. And I hope your listeners could be empowered by that. To realize they can have the key of ending all this suffering and all this that we have suffered and bring the whole world to greater and greater times. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The question is, are you going to be the one who's going to make it happen? And you can make it happen. You said it best. Look, you've been a tremendous inspiration to me and to millions of people. And people committing to real action, as you called upon on Shabbat, which could be whether in study. You know, we have the three uh, pillars. I recently thought of the, the acronym SPA, Study Prayer Actions. Studying, which is cognitive conditioning, thinking, studying God's wisdom, what He wants of us. Prayer, emotion, connection, and actions, good deeds. Mills Chasada. Um, and uh, there's no question that the revolution of light will always overcome darkness. It's just a matter of doing it. You know, as you said, naturally, the Rebbe wrote to you when you were young, and you said it so so beautifully. A little light dispels darkness. It's not even a battle. It's not like fire and water. It's just if there's no light, the darkness will, by default. He actually wrote that in the letter. He says, don't fight. Just right. dismiss it. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So what can I say? I really, really appreciate your time. For me, on behalf of everybody, you know, I, I uh, uh, give you a hug. <laughs> It's beautiful the Shabbat to be with you here, with the community. You should only have healing, and we know healing is transformation. It's not just enough to go back to square one. You have to transform. Healing means a, a new strength, a new power, and you'll have many more fingers, in yeah. some in, figuratively at least. And we should merit. I think you may you may actually merit to what you wanted to do, be the one that tips the scale. You've definitely reached more people than uh, anyone in recent history. And uh, not due to you, but due to the, as you said, the position you're in, and you're living up to being, making us all proud. Honestly, it's like, to me, it's my lifetime. I have not seen such a um, groundswell, and I see how it's affecting people. These conversations, and and it's very apolitical. It's not partisan. Everybody can embrace it. It doesn't. It's not the quibbling of all the pettiness. What can I say? And. Uh, so you really allowed yourself to be a channel for the truth. That's how I would best put it. Uh, if you remember the conversation I had with you, I walked out from the podium and I walked over to you. I said, God put you in my show at this moment so that you could take this experience and help all of your listeners and to all of your followers who follow you week after week and your whole constituents, I want them to know how you and your wife helped us in the darkest of moments to begin the healing process. Your talks was exemplary. Your connection on a one-on-one -on -one with Dr. Howard and Hannah and with Erston Carlewins was incredible. You took the call. You responded. You did what any chassid would have done when you see another fellow chassid is in pain, you answered, and we're, we're forever grateful for that. The least, it's the least. I mean, you know, uh, I hope we all show that type of, you know, we're all part of one larger organism, we're a part of one family, one body. That's what the Talmud says. So when one arm hurts, the other arm also hurts. That's what the Rebbe taught us. So your missing finger is our missing finger. And your strength is our strength. That's how we have to see it. That's what it is. That's the real ultimate wake-up call. We're not all in our own little corner, doing our own lives. We are one. And that's what can prevail over anything. What was nice was, the whole world heard the words, Am Yisrael Chai. <laughs> and you gave another interpretation of it. Do you want to say it? I did. So, it's, this is my father's style. He right. always played with words. And in addition to Am Yisrael Chai, I am Yisrael and I'm Chai. <laughs> Amen. Thank you so much. This has been my life. This is applied episode 259 we're here every sunday usually 8 to 9 p.m here i am in poway california a little a little hamlet on the outskirts of san diego has now become world famous for the good not for negative we will make sure that this place is the beginning ground zero of a revolution of goodness and kindness i thank you so much Abbe goldstein and we'll see each other and only good news please share Share your comments. If you have any questions, just go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. Be happy to follow up. I will be able to talk to Robbie Goldstein. If any of you direct questions to him, I will try to get an answer. It's really been an honor, a pleasure, and most importantly, let us all begin this revolution. Thank you so much. Okay.